This podcast is designed for you to discover more about who you are, to challenge your old adopted beliefs, and to expand your awareness of what's really possible. I'm Adam Esco, and this is The Unspoken Agreements. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The Unspoken Agreements podcast. I'm your host, Adam Esco. Very excited to introduce this week's fantastic guest, Brandon Tusk. But before I do that, I'm going to share a little bit about myself for those of you who do not know me. I am a life and leadership coach, and I get to work with people that are just totally unfulfilled or maybe sometimes frustrated or overwhelmed with their current work, and they want something more for themselves. They want to oftentimes find something that's going to be really fulfilling to themselves and lead them through the process and potentially uh, move towards something that really invigorates them and gets them enthused to wake up every day to a cause that they really could stand behind, their purpose, find their purpose and passion. And that's what I help them get clarity on. If this is something that speaks to you, feel free to reach out to me at adam at escocoaching.com. also want to thank everyone that's listening right now because there are so many amazing modes of content. There's great podcasts. And the fact that you're here with us, I'm just very grateful. And I want to take a moment to acknowledge you for being here. I also like to thank our producers of the show, Truthwork Media, who have been so fantastic to work with. Podcasting is absolutely blowing up this year, previous years, and it's not going anywhere. And if this is something that interests you, I encourage you to reach out to Truthwork Media. They have been so great to work with. Now to the main event, BT, Brandon Tuss, as they call him. Brandon is a super insightful guy, and it has been so such a joy for me to listen more and more to him as he co-hosts my favorite podcasts. He co-hosts the Successful Mind podcast with uh, just a world-renowned coach, kind of a mentor to me, David Nagel. He and his wife are part of this amazing team uh, with David Nagel that I have gotten so much out of. They put out amazing content. Um, they kind of just share everything. And what you're going to hear from Brandon is a lot of his, a lot about his past, uh, where he grew up. He grew up in a small town with very fixed mindsets. And Brandon has really, really done a lot of inner work to break free of those uh, conditioned beliefs. And you're going to pick up on that during his sharing. He, he is very intentional about how he's vulnerable and how he practices every day to live a different kind of life. One that probably wasn't going to be available to him as a child, but he and his wife, Steph, are um, just such a powerhouse. And they're very inspiring to not only me, but many people that come across them. So I'm excited to share with you this episode. I hope you get a lot out of it. And without further ado, Brandon Tuss. All right. Well, it's so great to be on the pod with Brandon Tuss, a.k.a. T, as he's called a lot of the times on your podcast, the Successful Mind Podcast with David Nagel. And I have no shame, Brandon, in saying that that is my favorite podcast. Um, oh, thank uh, you so much, Adam. Yeah. We appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Man, it's so great to have you here. Um, what's so cool is that you've now recorded well over a hundred episodes 
And a lot of the episodes now, you kind of go inside the episode and you and David are kind of riffing back and forth and it gets so real so fast. And through what I've noticed in the last few episodes is you're just sharing more and more about yourself. And I'm like, wow, this guy is this guy is like a little Yoda master himself. I know David is, but it's cool to hear all your insights as well. So definitely appreciate your sharing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been a work in progress. I think one of the big things that I'm working towards in this new year is being more visible and being more vulnerable. And I think that's, you know, this opportunity providing me here just gives me another platform with which to do that. Because for the longest time, that was not my MO. For the longest time, it was, you know, you project this certain air about you or who you were supposed to be based on those you grew around up or grew, you know, grew up around. And it just, it doesn't serve you in the long run. So I've really, it's been a work in progress over these last, you know, 20 years of my existence, 10 uh, with David, of course, and expanding my horizons and just trying to lead with vulnerability because that's what brings people in. What do you, I love that. And and this is great because we're going to just be riffing back and forth. And what you just said hits home for me so, so well. It was a part of my life where I kind of shut everything down wanted to be safe, not visible, and realized that, you know, all the fears that I had with being visible were made up. And then when I'm starting to become more and more vulnerable, I started getting all this personal power from it. What What is it that you feel like you get out of this? I think more than anything, I just get the sense and the deep feeling that this is what I was meant to do. Like, we're not meant to hide behind these masks. And, you know, I still with as much work as I put in, I still wear masks daily. And I have to really remind myself at times that it's okay to take off the mask and be who you truly are. Because if you lead with that, then people are going to recognize that and they're going to appreciate that. And not only that, they're going to open up themselves. But I think it's really important that we do more and more of that in this day and age is that we are vulnerable. We Mm -hmm. are, you know, open to those around us because, you know, it's an interesting time to be a human. I mean, you've never had more information at your fingertips than you do now. And it's easy for all of us to sort of hide behind our phones or hide behind our screens. And I'm guilty of that as well. But I think when you stop, put that down, have a conversation with someone and really get to know that person, even if it's someone you're sitting next to on a bus or if you're standing in line at Starbucks or wherever it might be, just engaging those people and just having a conversation, it brings back that human element that I think, you know, we're sorely missing right now and it needs to come back. Totally. Totally. And you know what? it's easy to to say a lot of ways that social platforms, you could lose that sense of connectedness. But at the same time, some of the some of the doors that open up is when I have found other people being vulnerable through social media, which then opens up a door for a conversation. And likewise for myself and probably for yourself, the more sharing that we've done, you know, that opens up doors for you to connect with people and reach people that maybe wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago without the platform. So, you know, there's pros and cons to to what it offers, but it definitely can open up doors for connection to really take place too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and don't don't get me wrong, I definitely use my social platforms, but I have really toned it back over the course of these last 5 years because I'm no longer interested in giving, you know, 
BT's greatest hits to the world, you know? I mean, and that's one area where I haven't been super vulnerable. I mean, I've been vulnerable on like Facebook groups and things like that where I know it's a controlled community, but I won't go on my page and put out some highly vulnerable post because I know who's watching it. More often than not, it's my family. More often than not, it's the people who I grew up around. And then you have these interesting, you know, when they slide into your DMs and they ask if you're all right, they ask about this and that. So I, I really have tried to tone it down from that that standpoint. But I will say this, social media as a platform to get your message out there and if you're in business to be able to acquire business, it's never been better. But me, I've really toned it down and um, I'm just not interested in providing your greatest hits anymore. Because that was me. I mean, for the longest time, I was, I was the guy taking picture of every piece of food he put in his mouth. I was taking pictures on the beach, but I never really was showing those vulnerable parts, the parts that weren't necessarily great. And I think that's what you're getting. And for me, social media can be both triggering and toxic because I start getting FOMO, even though I know in my heart that I'm living this amazing life. All go on and look at what other people are doing and immediately without even thinking about it the judgments come out so i've really had to dial it back from that standpoint yeah it's going to be really cool to where we're about to go is talk more about your past and your upbringing to see a little bit get an insight of where that really comes from and speaking of vulnerability i think i have to share this that the not the last time i saw you but the second to last time i saw you i was pretty much in a full cry sob uh, at one of your transformational events that you do with the whole Nagel team. So, um, and, yeah, and you know I remember what? that. I remember <laughs> you that. You, well, I mean, you put in the work. That's that's what separates you from those who haven't, Adam, is that you've put in the work. And congr- congratulations for that. But that's when you know you have arrived at a place of vulnerability and truth, when you can just open up like that and yeah. lead with that and continue to use the tools to get you where you need to be. I think it's fantastic. So I know you grew up in a small town in Montana. Can you share a bit about what it was like for you to grow up in like this small town and what was available to you? What what was life like and what were the messages that you were hearing to stack questions? Yeah, absolutely. So the town where I grew up in, a small copper mining community known as Anaconda. Yes, like the snake. Our uh, mascot was the Copperhead. So we were two snakes, which was quite interesting. Mm. We weren't named after the snake. We were named after a mine that was in the area. And, you know, at the time, Anaconda was an amazing place to grow up. The problem was, is that copper was on the downward spiral. And because the major operation in town was a huge copper smelter, when the price of copper, when the bottom fell out, the community lost its its infrastructure. So this happened in 1980. So, you know, overnight, that operation was halted and shut down. So thousands of people lost their way of life just seemingly within 24 hours. So what you had there was thousands of people having to leave to pursue work elsewhere. And the town is still recovering from that 40 years later. It's it's really interesting to see. Now, at the time that happened, I was only six. Mm-hmm. So as a naive six-year-old, I didn't really see much of a difference. I just knew that this large stack that still looms prominently over the skyline there was a major part of the community. And now it's no longer there. But as I've aged and as I've been able to read about it and look back, there was a feeling in the town that 
they were forever going to be deemed the underdogs. They mm -hmm. were forever going to be deemed the forgotten. And this was by no means in a good way. You know, sometimes we look at the underdog and we want to root for the underdog. This was more of a negative way of looking at ourselves. And, you know, the town and the people sort of assumed that false identity over time. And they've struggled to move past it even to this point. Now, I will say it has gotten better there. They're starting to embrace tourism. They're starting to celebrate the beauty that a mountain town like that can offer. Uh, the population has stabilized. I think there's about 9,000 or so people that live there, but uh -huh. it's been a slow process to get there. Um, but it is, there still is sort of an air of sadness that sort of falls over it. And, you know, growing up there, I loved it. Like I loved every minute of it. And, you know, we can talk about this as this goes on about how I had every intent later on in my life to living back there. But that was before I made some changes in my life and started doing some, some deep work on myself that I realized that probably wasn't the best environment. But I will say this, that the biggest thing that town suffers from, and this was even so when I was, when I was living there early on, is their tremendous dependence on alcohol and drugs. In fact, it leads to Anaconda having consistently ranked number one in the entire state of Montana for uh, suicides based on per capita numbers. So it's there's there's a there's a heaviness that comes with living there because it's hard. It's it's uh, it's not easy to make a living there. The medium incomes are very low, so it is a struggle. But like I said, people are starting to change that. People are starting to stick around. They're starting to put money into the community, but. You know, people still remember it from its heyday back in the, you know, the 60s and 70s when there was all sorts of stores open and people were down on a Friday night having a good time. And then to have what happened to them with the smelter closing was, it was really tough pill to swallow. Um, there's happiness there. There's people there. There's wonderful people there that I still am in communication with, but it's just not a place that I could find myself living in uh, moving forward. Yeah. And here's what I'm interested in getting getting into a little bit with you so this is almost 40 years ago you're around six years old when things start turning the business of the town starts disappearing are you aware of the the sense and the message from the town from your parents on the rug getting pulled out from under you, as you would say, the sadness that's coming in. Are you sensing that when you're six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old? To be time? honest, to be honest, Adam, no, not at all. I think my parents, because they didn't work in that particular industry, hmm. um, but you know, my dad was in construction, but he wasn't in construction on the hill, as they called it. So he was doing construction around the state, working on interstate bridges and things of that nature. So he wasn't a part of that operation. And my mom, who worked at the local bank, uh, started there, retired there. I don't know how many 30 plus years she put in. Um, she too wasn't really affected by it outside of the fact that there weren't as many people in the town putting their money in the banks anymore. So mm -hmm. as a six-year-old, I remember thinking to myself how cool it was going to be when they imploded this rather large stack that was on this hill because they were going to clean it all up and then they were going to blow this up and, and level it. And this is a 520 foot stack where they used to, you know, where all the, the smoke would come out after they processed the copper. And I remember thinking, I'm going to sit on my friend's roof and we're going to watch them blow this up, not even realizing 
how important of a landmark that is. And thankfully, it's been saved. And now it's a it's a it's a park. It's a state park that you can go and visit. But I remember uh, not much about it affecting me personally. Um, but there were families who had to leave. I remember there was some of my friends from. I want to say like first grade who one day they were there and the next day they weren't. And it was really, really strange for me Mm -hmm. to experience that because I had a crush on this one girl who left overnight. And then I'm thinking to myself like, wow, that there must be something going on. But as a six year old would do, okay, well it's on to the next thing. It's not really a big deal. Yeah. And reflecting back where there messages like congruent messages within the town, you know, this is a small town. Does everyone have the same kind of beliefs about money, about what success means, about what's possible. Um, what what do you yeah. think as you reflect, reflect back were the themes there? I mean, there? I would say the, the piece that's instilled in me is that you have to fight for everything that you, you get. Like nothing is going to come to you. Nothing is going to come easy to you. So you've got to work. Yeah. And you know, how you go about your business doing that is, you know, you put your head down and you work as hard as you possibly can. And the people who do work hard, they don't make a tremendous wage, but they make enough to be comfortable. So I think that that security is a big common theme that runs through the thread of that community. You know, it's, 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 you know, you want to work to a place where you're safe, even, or safe and secure, even if you're not happy a hundred percent with your role or your job, just keep your head down and keep doing it because it's so be- so much better to have a job you hate that pays the bills than not have a job at all. So I think that is a common thread that fl- flowed through that community and still does on some level to this day. Yeah, super interesting, especially since you and David shed so much light about this on your podcast, the Successful Mind podcast, about how beliefs really get originated. You know, you talk about from generation to generation, something happens, right? In your town, the copper industry was there one day and then the next day it wasn't the mine was you know business was was out so what is everyone going to do to survive well you got to find something that's going to be stable you're going to have to put your head down and grind um, and that's that's what takes over in terms of what is actually true yeah 100% and it, what's interesting is it followed me to another community i lived in after i you know graduated from college and started my career you know i was uh living in a community that my wife steph grew up in in wisconsin called janesville and its main infrastructure was the general motors plant mm-hmm. and you know when we moved out there in 2000 i guess it was 2000 uh, 2000 Two, uh, not too long after we were out there, the plant closed. And when a plant of that size closes, you lose all the other feeder businesses that feed into that. You know, the, yeah, the, they make a you know a certain vehicle, but those vehicles have to have safety belts. So there's a safety belt factory there. They, they need seats. There's a seat factory there. So all these other businesses overnight were gone, and that was actually much bigger of a loss than the loss I experienced back in southwestern Montana. But it, it was interesting that it followed me to a new community and I could see how, I mean, that wasn't that long ago and they're still feeling the effects of mm-hmm. losing out on that. So it's just really interesting how when an infrastructure like that goes away, the identity of the town is so wrapped up in it, it's difficult to move past it. Yeah, that's fascinating. 
somehow you were able to get out of there. And I know it didn't start off on the East Coast. You went west to California. Can you share a little bit about your journey on how you left Montana and what you pursued? Yeah, so I always knew there was, you know, a, a bigger place for me. Um, I, I assume Montana would play a role in that. But, you know, it started to shift for me when I went away for college. You know, I left my community, went away to college at a university, University of Montana. It was about 100 miles from where I grew up. So it was far enough to where I didn't feel like I needed to come home every weekend and be staying in that same environment. And I started to experience the world a little differently while I was in school, um, even though I when I was at school, I ran mostly with kids from my high school who were going to the same college as me. I was introduced to a few new people that had, you know, different mindsets and they didn't seem to have to struggle uh, to, to get where they needed to go to. But um, to be honest with you, Adam, it really changed when I graduated from college and took a teaching position um, out of state. I actually was hired um, in a small community in Southern California, which to your listeners might sound super exotic, but believe me, it wasn't. It's on the uh, northern edge of Los Angeles County. It's a small town called, well, not small, by California standards, small, called Lancaster. And interestingly enough, I got that job because my uncle was friends with the PTA president of a local school district down there. And he knew that I had graduated from college and I didn't have a job yet. And my plan was to just be a substitute teacher in my hometown, work my way into the system, and then basically become a lifer. And he passed along my name to the PTA president who got it to the principal of the school who then interviewed me over the phone with the superintendent. How intimidating is that as a, you know, 21 year old kid. Mm -hmm. um, and I was hired right there on the spot and it's crazy, but in my mind, that was going to be a one year position. I was going to go down there. My mindset the whole time I was down there was I was going to go down, bank some cash. I was going to come back to Anaconda and I was going to work my way into the school system doing substitute jobs until I got my shot. And that was, I really thought that was the way it was going to go down. And my uncle, God love him, he housed me for the first three and a half months I was down there. And we'd sit, we'd sit on the patio and have these long talks about life and where life takes you because he grew up there as well. He grew up in the same town that I used to live in, in Anaconda. And he knew that I'd never go back there to live. And, you know, I argued with him and I told him flat out he was wrong. There's no way. This is a one-year gig. And in the end, I found out he was dead on. And thank God, because my life really changed once I made the decision and burned the ships, if you will, that I wasn't go going to go back and live in that community. And then while I was down there in, you know, California, it, it wasn't until I met Steph, who I mentioned was my is my wife, who was a teacher at the time as well. And that's when things really started to shift to what was possible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's crazy to think about it now, but when I was back home for spring break back in 98, you know, we got these really juicy breaks as teachers. I really noticed that it wasn't my place anymore. Like I went home and I'd sort of, of outgrown it. And I hesitate to say that because I don't want to say I'm above anyone who's still there, but I had outgrown the place. And I was sitting there over this lengthy spring break, just really twiddling my thumbs, probably getting ready to go out another booze-fueled run, like which is what I would do when I would go home. Um, mm. And I got a call from Steph saying she was heading back to California a little bit early. And uh, she said I should consider joining her. And at the time, we weren't even dating. We were just friendly. And I told her I was hopping in my car and going to drive the 17 hours and I'll see you tomorrow. Mm. 
<laughs> so, you know, my mom didn't like that answer. She wanted me the whole time at home because it's nice to have your kids around. But it was then I knew that my hometown would always be with me on so many levels and it created me who I am on some soul level as a person, but my home would definitely be elsewhere. So yeah, yeah it's uh, a, it's an interesting story to rehash and I, I love it. Love telling it. Yeah, that's a, that is a great story and there's so much in there. And what I was, what came up for me was thinking when you were just starting off in California that first year and you're talking to your uncle and he's saying, you know, you're not going to go back and you're like, I'm going back. It, do you think that was from a place of this is all I know or was there desire to go back and substitute to be a teacher and to go through the system or also to, to add one more thing to the fire? Was it like I have to go back because I'm going to be pressured from my family and I feel like I should be there around them? Yeah, you know, it really wasn't any pressure from my family. I think I think the fact that they knew I was with family down there, they were fine with it as long as I was with family. If I would have moved to someplace else that I didn't have family, it may have been a different story. But, you know, the way I looked at it at the time was, you know, all of my friends were back there. I mean, not necessarily in the hometown I was in, but they were in and around the area. They didn't go very far away. And it was what was safe and it, it's what I knew. You know, so I had my, I had my circle that I would golf with on Saturdays. I had my circle that I would bowl with on Mondays. I would go drinking on any day that ended in Y. I mean, really, that was the yeah. fabric that I was building my decisions around. And as a, you know, 21, 22 year old kid, you know, you're thinking to yourself, like, this is what I know. So I'm going to just stay with what I know. And the best thing that ever happened was, going to California, listening to my uncle, meeting new people and realizing that I can start fresh and I can start new and nobody really knows me down here so I can be whoever I want to be. And that was when I really tapped into the true nature of who I was as a person. Now, had I gone back after that year, who knows? I, I guarantee mm -hmm. you I wouldn't be here right now, but uh, who knows what my life would have, would have led to. But it's those seminal decisions you make, those moments in your life when you make those decisions and you're not really sure where they're going to go, but you're trusting on a gut instinct that it's all going to work out. And for me, for me it did, but I was, I mean, Adam, I was set. I was going to be there for one year. I was going to put in the time, make some bank, and then head back and just figure it out. And I'm so grateful that I'm so grateful that it, it worked out for me in the end. Yeah, it's fantastic. And what's so interesting is that, you know, a lot of times we grow up in an environment where, like you said, you, you want to go with what it is that you know, the, the known path is the safe path. And ever since that one decision you made to drive out to see Steph and then which led to who knows of countless other decisions, uh, you have kind of opened up doors that have taken you to where you are now, which yeah, by the yeah, like it, these, this wasn't even a, a thought and you're blemish no. in your mind that you'd be here 10 years ago, right? Five, maybe even five years oh, ago. Yeah, no way. I mean, the amount of growth that's happened over the course of the last decade. I mean, really, we met David in 2008. So since mm. 2008, it's been a whole different ball game. And it's just, it's fascinating to see. Like one of the things when you were talking, I was thinking about was if you go back, like when you reach a certain, you know, age, you know, I'm, I, I'm 45 years old. So when you reach a certain age and you go back and 
I try not to dwell too much in the past, but it's it's sort of in my wiring that that's where I look. Um, I'm having a hard time staying present at times. But when you look back on your life, you'll see these decisions that you made and you'll see the direction that they took you. And to ponder what it would look like had you not made that decision. We can never truly know, but you can go back and say to yourself, like, look at this decision that led me to this. And then another decision led me to this. And here I am now. It's these alternate timelines that sometimes are very fascinating to me because had I not made the decision to take that interview in California, I wouldn't have left the state and met my future wife. Had I not met my future wife, I wouldn't have had my amazing kids. Had I not, um, you know, decided to leave California and go to Wisconsin where, where Steph is from, that would have changed and it wouldn't have brought David into our awareness. So all these things had to work perfectly to get me where I am today. And it's really interesting to see that those decisions really do bear fruit the further you go into your life. What what feelings come up when you even think about that? I mean, gratitude was the first thing that comes to mind. Is there anything else that really that you get from just that reflection exercise? I think it's owning who I am. So I will tell you, Adam, for sure, I have a hard time taking credit for any of what I have up to this point. It's been work for me over the course of the last several years to get to a place where I can say, yeah, I am a part of this. Like I, I credit a lot of my success to Steph and her tenacity for not saying no when it's so much more comfortable to say no. Like when she first approached me about working with David back in 2008, I was thinking to myself, this is one of those moments, those decisions I was talking about where we can either choose to hire him as our coach, in effect, draining our entire 401k. And I'd worked, you know, like 10 or 11 years in the classroom and to drain our our 401ks to be able to coach with him at this high level, I very easily could have pushed back and said no. But because of the fact that I didn't, it really changed everything. It's crazy. It came from crazy. a total stability. Like this was the upbringing. This was your upbringing. It's like you have to have something stable. How did you say yes at that moment? You know, it was it was curiosity. It was mm. it was the thrill of the unknown. And at the time, I was like I said, I was in my probably tenth year of teaching at the time, and I was only giving one hundred and ten percent. Now I know that that's not you know mathematically correct, but here's the thing: if you're a teacher and you're not giving one hundred and ten percent, you're taking somebody else's spot. So I was sitting in that classroom, thinking to myself, like my heart just isn't it anymore and I need something different. Now, Steph made the leap first. She left teaching a year before I did to start her own nutrition business and I got to see firsthand how she would get up every morning and be excited to go to work. She was excited to work with her clients. She was excited to see the possibility that this life could bring and here I was dragging my ass to school, standing in front of fifth graders, trying to put on a happy face. I was still yeah. doing my absolute best. I wasn't mailing it in, but my heart wasn't there. So it was at that point in time where I'm like, I got to find something else to do. And then through working with, you know, Steph and understanding how that was going to work and then going off and doing other ventures on my own, I knew that, that I had to get out. And I almost make it sound like prison sometimes. Like, I, you know, the, the language yeah. I use around it is, I've got to get out. There's something more for me. And yeah. it was interesting because my principal, principal at the time, 
who was a lovely woman and I absolutely adored her. But she told me on the day I was leaving that, you know, don't worry. There's always a place for you here. You can come back mm-hmm. in a year and we're happy to take you back. And I was at the time I was like, wow, that's really nice. They really appreciate who I am as a person. And then I thought, damn it, they don't trust me. They don't believe in me. And I said at that moment, I'm not going back. I don't care how yeah. bad it gets. I am not coming back. And my family, they thought I was nuts. I remember having a phone call with my mom about, you know, I was actually, I was kind of looking for permission in a way and letting her know that I was leaving mm-hmm. the teaching profession. Mm-hmm. And they thought I was nuts because where else can you have three months vacation a year and full benefits and uh, make a decent wage? But it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the benefits. It wasn't about the time away. It was about fulfilling something inside of me that there was so much more. And it was just really, really interesting. But when I look back on those days, and I loved my time as a teacher, and I infected a lot of kids in a very, very positive way. Um, I look back on gratitude, like you said, but I also look back on the importance of following your inner guidance, Mm. following your gut and trusting that if you're not happy with something right now, if you're struggling with something right now, there's something you are resisting. And more often than not, it's because you've gotten too safe, you've gotten too secure. And even though you're miserable, you feel like cash and a paycheck is going to make you happy. I'm here to tell you it doesn't. You've got to follow that inner guidance and really make the most of the situations that are presented to you. And sometimes you have to make your own situations. Yeah, that's uh, so that totally hit home as you know, I made a, a bit a really big career shift myself where for me people saw leaving periodontics, leaving dentistry, clinical dentistry as this courageous act and and that just never felt right. I was just like I, I don't see it that way because what it was was I left because the thought of staying and doing that every single day, which I had been doing for, at the time, five years, was so painful to imagine extending that 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I just couldn't get there. Okay, this is such a great conversation that we decided to split it up into two parts. So next week, we're going to go jump back right into this conversation and hear the rest of what Brandon has to say. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. If something resonated with you and you'd like to share it, please email me at adam at escocoaching.com or send me a message on social media.